welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we chat with Kindy DeLay Gill about how to deal with family conflict, not through counseling, rather through your cells. We also have another bio diet checkup with Dr. David G. Harper. Hint, chocolates aren't the most popular gift. Ever wonder if men who've had a spinal cord injury can have sex or father a child? The ladies of WAGs, women and girlfriends of men with SCI tell all. We also have a conversation about intimate partner violence and why we can't give judges, lawyers, police, social workers, politicians, or men a pass. evening and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. It's uh, family day across Canada and guess what? We're having a little bit of a family show tonight. Uh, so great to have you with me this evening and it's always my pleasure to be with you of course. Your health is your wealth and through the expertise of my guests and storytelling along with the review of the evidence I hope to educate you of the benefits of good health. My objective is that you are not only a little bit better informed but healthier and happier too. And guess what? Sex and intimacy has a lot to do with that as well. Sex facilitates feelings of intimacy which does a lot more than make you feel warm and fuzzy all over. It actually boosts your over Overall health. So, time to put the kids to bed if they're under the age of 35 and you haven't launched them yet. Remember, this show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor for whatever ails you. So, thank you for joining me. If you have a question at all, you can email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. If you want to give me a call, you can call me at 1 877 399 9898. And of course, if you want to speak to any of my amazing guests tonight. So, tonight on the program, we are talking about uh, spinal cord injury. I do some work in that area. I've done a f- significant amount of research and work with an, worked with a number of patients since 2003. And uh, so I'm delighted to have the couple of wives and girlfriends of men who have uh, experienced spinal cord injury, and they are called the WAGS ladies. And I'm excited to have them join me to dispel some of the myths out there. Uh, this week, we've had just far too much violence against women. One situation is too much. And you know what? Now I'm annoyed. I've had it. And so I'm going to talk to you about the campaign that I have just started. I'm going to get, give you a little update on my uh, bio diet and why my husband is calling me Wilma Flintstone. Um, lots of other things to talk about too on the program. But right now, I uh, want to talk about family conflict. I myself have literally 55, I counted them today, 55 uh, family members, um, close family members. So brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and spouses and, um, you know, wives and this and that. Anyway, that doesn't even count the second cousins uh, or, or my own cousins. So, uh, with 51, 51 or 55, what did I say? 55, 55, sorry. Um, immediate family members, you can imagine that uh, you were Irish Catholic. Yes, you got that right. Um, but you can imagine that we have a significant amount of family con- conflict. And in fact, sometimes I think we thrive on it. So um, maybe that's the truth. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you have some issues in your family as well. So I'm delighted to have in the studio with me, Kindy DeLay Gill. She focuses on the topic of eradicating conflict and stress 
stress within relationships and families. She's a former chief executive officer of a private company responsible for 3,000 people nationally in the United Kingdom. She has 30 plus years of experience in leadership and change management. She is trained as a chartered accountant. She's a member of the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers, the former president of the local Vancouver and British Columbia chapter. She's also a certified facilitator of the Dalian Method from the Dalian School of Health and Consciousness, an accreditation that has taken her 11 years of detailed and intimate work in understanding human behavior. Kindy educates on the source of stressed out mental and emotional triggers, and you can rest assured, I've had my fair share. Good evening, and thank you for joining me in the studio, Kindy. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, uh, it's great to have you. So, family conflict, and that's kind of what we touched upon um, when when I met you this week at that's the right. event where I spoke to 150 women who uh, the event was pegged as, can you come and um, speak to 150 women who don't feel like having sex with their husbands anymore in midlife? <laughs> I'm like, I am on that. Yeah, I got it. Um, so we met, and that was great. We talked about family conflict um, and something I know a fair bit about, but how to deal with it, I don't know. And so so tell me uh, a little bit about how, how you got into this work and why this is important. And is it normal to have issues with your siblings, your children, your spouses, your, your in-laws, your family? Well, I got into this work accidentally. Um, you heard from the bio that I was working in a business and I run a company with 3,000 people. And then when I came to the end of that career and emigrated to Vancouver, I discovered that actually managing my small family unit was a lot, lot tougher than the 3,000 people I'd been responsible for. Um, and it became very intriguing for me to understand because now you can't fire somebody. You can't fire a family member if things aren't working out for you. Um, you can't force them to do something that you're asking them to do just because there might be a paycheck <laughs> waiting for them. So the whole dynamics of how does a family flow is extremely intriguing but also it was my first understanding of my own changed behavior as well interacting with my husband interacting with the children because I wasn't aware of so many things that were influencing my identity that were all based on what I do in the outside world and a lot of what was happening inside the family wasn't being seen as important plus we tend to take the mask off and so when we're in the home environment, a lot of the stresses that are actually affecting us where we're holding things together in the outside world um, can't be done quite so gracefully and so prettily at home. And so when you're decloaked of all of those masks, it's very easy to get into aggression. It's very easy to get into anger. It's very easy to get triggered. So a lot of things that go on in the home, typically families tend to hide. And, uh, and I didn't want to hide so much what was happening. I wanted to expose it and understand it. And that's where a lot of this journey began. Outstanding. So that leads me to many questions, but one of which is uh, sometimes when family members get really upset with you, like a friend wouldn't, mm -hmm. um, sometimes people will say, and I'm just curious if this is a myth, you know, they're, they're so upset with you. A child might be so angry, um, but because they can be, because there's safety there. Mm -hmm. How much truth is there in that? There's absolute truth. There's absolute truth because there's a sense somewhere that I'm not going to lose this family member. Um, and the home environment tends to be a space where the honest truth can be revealed. So a lot of the times the conflict actually has truth behind it. 
Of course it does. And so, which leads me to my next question is how much of the conflict that we're experiencing in life, in families, uh, has to do with our upbringing? From what I've understood, nearly every single trigger that I've yet experienced in the home environment had something to do with either my own upbringing and my own childhood history, or it had something to do with the genetic imprints of the upbringing my parents went through and how that had been passed on to me at birth or the imprints that their ancestors had had. So it's a little bit complicated because it's not exactly everything to do with your own childhood, but it certainly is a byproduct of what you've been stamped with on arrival as a baby that comes onto this planet. And so there's something to be said for what's bred in the mo- what's bred in the bone is revealed in the flesh. Absolutely. And so that's what you're talking about basically. Absolutely. So it can be something that our grandmothers or our great grandmothers had to deal with or how they responded or what their emotional state was like and then exactly. that can come down when you're dealing with your 15-year-old yeah, teenage and, daughter. And some things are so irrational that they can't you can't understand why the response or the behavior is the way that it is. But some things are so irrational that they always come back to some history. Like, for example, science has now proven that those that went through the Holocaust have certain imprints and certain ideas around trauma that have been passed on genetically to their offspring. Um, People in the past that have been through famines or through huge amount of poverty, they could actually be living in an extremely wealthy home and have all the circumstances to give them the impression that they're safe and they're okay and their survival is not at risk. But yet their behavior would be very irrational as if they're about to run out or as if they're about to be without food. Um, And so a lot of what goes on in people has a mystery behind it. And that's the mystery that then actually ends up liberating people. And that's actually quite intriguing. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there. Money's a big issue for people mm-hmm. and money in families. Mm-hmm. And um, and so many people, you know, they just have all these sorts of issues. Now, they may not have grown up with a lot of money and then they've made a lot of money, but then they still act like they don't have any money um, kind of a thing. So how much does money play a role in in terms of security, in terms of... Uh, people's attitudes toward the family? It's a key contributor to your survival instinct. Mm -hmm. So your survival instinct about being able to make it on the planet and weather the storm and all of us want to protect ourselves of the fear of dying. Um, And so survival is very, very key in the way that we're programmed. And unfortunately, because money is the um, medium... Root of all evil. Well, no, it's, sorry. The, it, it's the medium <laughs> through which a lot of our survival needs are met. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of priority is placed on money too. So, for example, you may come from an environment where there wasn't a lot and therefore you've got this idea that there's not enough and mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how much you have, but that background of I've not got enough is still running through the imprint And that will be driving your behavior and then it will leave you to be frugal and then you'll be still holding on to money and haven't yet understood that actually money is energy. And if it's being exchanged in the world and it's being put into circulation, more comes back rather than the hoarding process. Mm -hmm. So it's odd because often a lot of the richest people in the world that we... Uh, like to applaud or recognize and seemingly get very excited about the fact that they've achieved success, it's come from the backdrop of not enough. 
And it's come from the backdrop of a very large fear in them that's been driving them to have to keep accumulating and accumulating because inherently somewhere in their unconscious is this idea that there's not enough. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting the program. Tim French behind the boards tonight. Great to have you, Tim. Uh, in the studio with me is Kindy DeLay-Gill. We are talking family conflict. We are talking, I'm sure you have issues with your family. That's the other thing, Kindy. So many people pretend, especially today, especially given social media, we're such a perfect family. Mm. Like, I am the first to say, we are not. And do I actually keep it? Um, you know, behind the door? Absolutely not. I've been known to be crying through the neighborhood, screaming, crying, looking for my child. Actually, in fact, a neighbor said to me, um, I loved you. You were like screaming (laughs) and, you know, crying and looking for your child. I'm like, I couldn't find him, you know? (laughs) And she's like, you didn't care what any of the other mothers, uh, any of the other mothers thought. And I didn't. Um, I have also been said, uh, you People have said to me, I never knew this was a compliment or an insult. You don't even try to keep up with the Joneses. <laughs> I should. But nonetheless, we're talking about control. Right. Um, so controlling behaviors are, I mean, I believe are lethal. They, they can really be detrimental. So why do we control? What's that about? Well, fear is at the root of it all. Because um, any moment something's flowing a certain direction and we're anticipating a problem or or something's going to go wrong, instinctively there's a desire then to do something about it. But often control comes in as a way to dominate others too. And bizarrely, again, it will be insecurity that's driving your desire to dominate someone. So I'll give you an example. Say, for example, you've got a family member that's extremely creative, very, very, um, uh, 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 like a, a, a nice, charming personality that's able to get on with everybody. Now, what will happen is if another family member perceives that some element of jealousy has come up or can see that that isn't really what they have, but they wish they had... Mm-hmm. So then what happens is the mind, the ego mind, wants to tear down what it sees outside of itself mm-hmm. that is actually better than it sees itself as. Right. So the mind tends to compare. But that's just a universal mechanism of the mind. And people don't realize that that need to compare or that natural response to compare is something that the mind does, but that's not them. But people act on what their mind is saying and doing. Right. Do you see that with like sunny personalities and when when people say they want to put out your light for their darkness? A lot of the time, you know when it says misery likes company? Mm -hmm. And there's a big, big truth in that. Because if I come rolling into a street and I'm sitting in a room full of depressed people, sad people, and I've got this big smile on my face, I'm a sore to them Mm. because I'm experiencing something they are not experiencing. Right. So instead of running towards me to say, look, you look really, really happy and vibrant, I'd like a piece of what you've got, the other reaction falls into place, which says I want to tear you down because you're actually putting assault on the wound that I'm experiencing inside that I'm not going to let the Joneses know about and I'm not going to let the outside world know about but I know that that wound is inside me and the only thing I can do right now is control this situation so I feel better in my misery. And, And it just makes relationships worse I would imagine when people behave in that manner. Well that's that's the key reason why everything goes wrong because um when if you look at yourself right if anybody imposes on your freedom what do you want to do bye-bye exactly (laughs) right see you later (laughs) because being loved is an extremely important attribute 
but retaining your freedom is a higher attribute to being loved. Right. Right. Yeah, good point. And so this is where a lot of the compromises happen in family lives is because in that neediness to be loved, what will happen is people forsake their freedom. And that's when the control cycle comes in. But the control cycle is only coming in, ironically, to assist you. And this is the part that's going to be a little bit difficult for some of the audience to hear properly. If you're being controlled Mm -hmm. and I'm being the bully, Mm -hmm. then really what I'm doing is I'm bullying you because I see a weakness inside you. Yes. Well, here I am as an opportunity for you to grow into your strength. Mm -hmm. So I'm showing up to force you to evolve, to force you to become more of your magnificent self, to force you to love yourself. So all these things that are often seen as being potentially bad in families, they're actually just levers and triggers that are forcing you to to actually own your true strength. Okay, we don't have too much time left, but I just want to ask quickly about people pleasers, the middle child, the people yes. pleaser. That could be me. Go ahead. <laughs> could be you. <laughs> Diagnose me. Go on. <laughs> But again, people pleasing is another quality often is in the middle child because you've seen like the rebellious older child, then you've seen the one that tends to be the star that's the, the last child or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the middle one's trying to figure out like what are the parents doing and, and this one's getting into trouble and this one's not getting into trouble and like, how am I going to keep the peace and like all this stuff. But again, at the bottom of all of, all of that desire to please, mm-hmm. there's a sincere aspect to it because the child wants the parents to have an easy life. Mm -hmm. But then there's also a weakness in it because there's insecurity that says, I don't want to be the one that's causing trouble Mm -hmm. and I don't want to be the one that's doing this. So like the middle child is trying to keep the peace because again, they're afraid of the disruption that's arising. I see. Very Mm. interesting. Mm. We only have like 30 seconds left. How can people get in touch with you? Um, They can get in touch with me through my website, kindygill.com. Um, And then there's a little page on there for them to just check in and ask for a complimentary conversation. And um, they're very welcome to come and explore the conversations. Definitely going to get you back. Talk about intimate relationships a little further. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath, we're shifting our focus right now. You got to feed your family. You should probably be feeding them the bio diet. And joining me in the studio is David G. Harper, author of The Bio Diet and and regular 12-week guest on this program to help you lose weight, inches, and be healthier. And that's the most important thing. And even though I have lost some inches, I've lost two inches on my waistline and about 10 pounds since we started this, um, I I'm probably healthier (laughs) as well. I mean, maybe my goal was to take off that extra gift from Christmas, but... um, Uh, Yeah, but... uh, So what's the Wilma Flintstone? What's that about? Oh, because I... I, Oh, yes, yes. So that was a lovely Valentine's comment um, out for dinner and uh, at an Italian restaurant, and I ordered the lamb shank, which is something I would never order. But I find myself, since I've been doing the bio diet, craving chicken legs. You know, I've yep. been known to stop more than once to sure. just pick up a chicken leg <laughs> and eat that. Like and a brontosaurus burger. A the brontosaurus same idea. burger. Yeah, like I am craving the turkey legs from Disneyland <laughs> and Disney World right now. I don't know well, if you've seen those, but... This is great because what it's telling you is you've actually changed your metabolism now. So you're probably not craving sweet things and no. bread and things like that. You're now starting to crave things like I know. grass-fed butter. And I, I, oh my God, I'm completely addicted to grass-fed butter. I know, yeah. it, 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 it's strange, but that's a really good sign. It's a really good sign oh, because, great. of course, when you're craving fat, it means you're also burning fat. And, oh, and so some of that fat you're burning is the fat that's around your uh, midsection. I'll let you have very okay. little of that, I can tell. Well. Um, so, yeah. So, but, you know, we talk so much about weight loss and diets, but 
what I really wanted to do for the next four weeks, because we're in the biorejuvenation phase. So this is people have bioadapted if they've been following along. And, and if they haven't, they can go to the website, Sunday Night Health Show, and, and uh, they can download the previous episodes, right? Yes. yes oh, and before I forget, uh, the book now, Biodiet, is now available as an audiobook. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, we did it last fall and it just came out. So if you want uh, to hear my voice and, and my wife, Dale, who's my co-author, uh, read the book to you. Um, it's now available on all the, the platforms. So okay, fantastic. One of the things we emphasize in the book is, yes, people come to ketogenic diets for weight loss because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's pretty well established as the best way to lose weight and lose fat. Uh-huh. Uh, as opposed to losing muscle mass. Um, but really what I'm interested in as a health educator and as a health researcher is the health effects outside of just weight loss. So uh-huh. uh, the model that I've created is this axis of illness I talk about in the book, which the three major factors that contribute to chronic disease are insulin resistance, obesity, and inflammation. And so what I thought I'd do for the next uh, four weeks is take the four leading uh, causes of chronic disease, and we'll talk about how ketogenic diets uh, help prevent that and, and actually may help be a therapeutic treatment. And that's one of the things I'm doing researching uh, cancer, which we'll do in week four. So, now, are you doing breast cancer and women treating? That's right, yeah. yes. Yeah, in, 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 uh, at the BC Cancer Research Center, and that's in collaboration with uh, our team at The Ohio State University. Right, and any interim analysis yet? or um, any? I'm not the lead investigator, okay. so it's not really my place to comment, but uh, very promising is what okay. I'm allowed to say. Uh, and all of the women that we've enrolled, it's a very small study, there's only 20 women on each side, and right. uh, but all have responded positively to the ketogenic intervention. Okay. So that's all Excellent. I can say. So Excellent. far, the results will be out probably in about a year from now. Okay. We are uh, very excited. That's great. Um, So, uh, yeah, so we'll do that in week four. And then the week four that we'll talk about cardiovascular disease. Next week, we'll talk about diabetes. But tonight, I wanted to talk about uh, brain health and Alzheimer's. There's been a couple of really exciting papers out um, just in the last couple of weeks uh, talking about how ketogenic diets may... Uh, prevent uh, Alzheimer's disease and may even be able to treat Alzheimer's disease, which uh-huh. of course is the leading form of dementia. Um, and and so I'll get a little sciencey, but you know you can you can stop me when it gets too sciencey. Okay, <laughs> I love the science, David. Well, basically we've we know that Alzheimer's disease is aggravated by obesity, one of those three of the axis of illness. Um, aside from any of the other effects, just being obese, uh, it probably has something to do with the the cell signaling uh, molecules that come with obesity. Um, especially mid-abdominal obesity. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, Alzheimer's is also known as type 3 diabetes sometimes. It's, it's essentially an insulin resistance of the brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, insulin is a signaling molecule. It has all kinds of uh, amazing, it's one of the most powerful hormones in our body. Um, but it does, um, it does, you don't need insulin to get glucose into the brain cells, into the neurons, but you do need insulin to metabolize properly in those cells. And if you don't, uh, and if you're just burning sugars, which most people are eating on a high sugar diet, you're going to get a lot of what we call reactive oxygen species or just oxidants. Mm-hmm. And you probably heard of antioxidants like vitamins are good for that. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we found is that the main ketone produced in a ketogenic diet, which is called beta hydroxybutyrate or BHB, actually inhibits this little uh, compound within each of the cells called the NLRP3 inflammasome. <laughs> okay, got it. Uh, save that one for Scrabble. NL, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we won't talk about what that uh, means. Well, it's, it's node like a receptor protein number three. Anyway, that is a trigger of inflammation in the brain cells, in, okay. in around those brain cells, and it aggravates, if not causes, some of the, um, some of the problems that come with Alzheimer's. 
So people with type 2 diabetes, then they would be at risk. Much higher risk of much developing higher Alzheimer's. Risk. That's right. People that are obese, much okay. higher risk. And again, in that axis of illness, they aggravate each other. How about thin people who eat a lot of sugar? Not that I knew anyone like that. You know, when we get to diabetes <laughs> next week, we'll talk about that. Um, it, we call it sort of, um, you know, skinny outside, fat inside, Sophie. Mm-hmm. Um, and those people actually have, uh, they're at higher risk even. Um, okay. So uh, there's a fellow named uh, Dr. Stephen Conane, friend of mine at Sherbrooke University, and uh, he's studying the uh, exogenous ketones, if you just drink them or whatever, and their effects on brain health. And he's actually had some very uh, impressive results showing uh, that it, it uh, positively improves brain function in people with mild cognitive impairment, which is probably a sign that your brain is becoming insulin resistant. Uh, and and also some improved brain function in people with Alzheimer's. And he's using uh, fMRI, so it's he's okay. actually imaging the brains and seeing the brain activity after people just orally drink. It's MCT oil, which we talked about earlier. Right. Um, and a couple tablespoons a day really improve function. What's really interesting about this is even in the normal patients that he, are in the control side, he's seeing about a 15% increase in brain function. Oh, wow. This is in the normal side. So what it indicates is that as you shift from burning just sugars to now burning uh, to now burning the, the ketones, and the, they actually burn ketones. It's kind of like switching from a gas-powered car to an electric car. Mm-hmm. So these ketones burn much cleaner. So it's like an electric car, so it doesn't cause as much inflammation and damage in the brain, which is amazing. And you get this improved brain function as well as the resistance to Alzheimer's and a new study out just this week showing that there may be evidence that actually two studies, one in the Journal of American Medical Association, the other one in Nature Medicine, showing that these ketones actually have the effect of clearing the beta amyloid plaques that form in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. So there is some hope or potential that a ketogenic diet and the ketones produced on that diet can actually reverse some of the uh, Alzheimer's very early days and uh, and just preliminary studies. Wow, that's amazing. And so uh, how about people who are not doing the ketogenic diet or a bio diet uh, if they just use the MCT oil? Is that... Well, that's something that, like uh, Dr. Cunane is doing in Sherbrooke. So that will yeah. arguably improve your brain function. But okay. will it prevent uh, Alzheimer's? Too early to say, and probably not in the same way. Right, right. Um, interestingly, there's a study just out today to show that the uh, another beneficial effect is that um, in the in the respiratory cells, nothing to do with the brain, but there's an, uh, when, they've, when they've challenged uh, mouse uh, lungs with the influenza virus, they've seen that the, that same ketone, that beta-hydroxybutyrate, actually really improves their chance of survival of, of an influenza A virus. And so there's some hope that all, if you know, if you're worried about uh, the COVID-19, uh, the new uh, coronavirus, uh, because that's also a respiratory virus, there may be maybe some right. protective benefits of a ketogenic diet uh, for that as well. But you have to be keto adapted like you are now because you're craving grass-fed butter. Right. I'm craving <laughs> grass-fed butter, chicken legs, yeah. and what, what <laughs> turkey the drumsticks. If the sugar part of it, because what we're trying to do is get the sugar to your diet. Um, another study out this week um, from the uh, International Journal of Molecular Science showed that um, it's actually the, the, the sucrose, and it's the fructose part of sucrose, it's uh-huh. sucrose and glucose together, actually does downregulate the opioid and the dopamine receptors in the brain. So this may be an indication that we've suspected for a long time that sugar is actually addictive. It's actually having the similar effects in your brain that, that uh, cocaine would have. 
And obviously, some people are more susceptible than others. And so there are some people who could be true sugar. Speaking of which, sugar addicts, I brought, I brought you Fantastic. a sugar-free ketogenic yeah. brownies I'm, to I'm taste. I'm totally <laughs> looking forward to it. I, I want to say that you didn't need to do a research study to figure out that there is a sugar addiction. I have one. Uh, absolutely, 100%. Um, I know. And I can feel that when I'm, you know, onto the Oreo cookies or onto whatever it is, the birdies or whatever. Have a but bite. this brownie, I it's, am. You yeah, know I swear, these are the best keto brownies. They're so good. <laughs> Now, they're not I absolutely carb-free, so they're not appropriate if you're still bioadapting, but once you've adapted, you oh. can, and you know, it's a... It's but it's, it looks it's, amazing. It's, it's Does really it have good. icing on it as well? It has icing, icing, which has cream and butter, uh, sorry, cream and, and uh, real chocolate, and it's just, uh, they're to die for. Fantastic, but I have to say my response to it is different than it would have been two months ago, because two months ago I would have been just like dying to get to that brownie, dying yeah. to, but now I'm like... Okay, I'm going to savor that. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath, just after a chocolate brownie, something she does incredibly well. David G. Harper joins me in the studio. We are talking the bio diet. I did want to read, David, uh, an email that I received from somebody, dear Maureen. And David, just wanted to let you know that my weight is down eight pounds, two inches off of each, my waist and hips. And that is with some cheating. Ooh, another hot topic. Overall, so far, a good lifestyle change of major alcohol reduction and awareness. Also, so much more appreciation for carbs and carb-heavy foods, even enjoying zucchini spaghetti. So that's kind of a nice email. And probably a lot of people have been made aware of their alcohol consumption, given the bio diet, because initially there's no alcohol, right? Yeah. A few weeks. You know, if we talk about the psychology of of dieting, too, just being more mindful about what you eat Mm -hmm. is so important. Yes. Um, I think in our busy days, what we do is we just, we, we go out the door, we stuff something in our face in the mm-hmm. morning, we run out the door when we're hungry, we right. find some fast food that'll, and it's usually stuff that's high carb, and, and so you get this insulin spike, and then right. it pulls all the sugar to your blood, then you get dead tired and starving, you know, yes. so you... Um, so just being more mindful about food. Right. If you look at the way, you know, people that have lower obesity in, in countries where there's lower obesity, like Italy and, and, and Spain, some of the Mediterranean countries, they, <laughs> it's a family thing, family day tomorrow. But it's also they'll think about what they're going to have for dinner when they go in the morning and they'll shop for that stuff on right. their way home or on their way to work. And they actually, they have a plan <laughs> rather than just a reaction to hunger. And that's, right. that's one of the important things. And right. And uh, and you were saying in the break there that you've you've experienced quite a few like you 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 can feel the change, mm-hmm. and that's so psychologically important because now you have not only the positive feedback like the woman that just uh, wrote in about the loss of inches which is what interests me the most, mm-hmm. um, but also the mental feeling after you eat and mm-hmm. and when you start losing those inches and you see the weight loss that positive psychology exactly. really helps you stay with it. It does, and you know the clothes were getting just a little bit tight and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're kind of back to normal. Nice. Which is, which is much better. Um, so we were going to talk about leptin and... Leptin and ghrelin. Well, these are, we're still talking about brain um, health a little bit. Um, and they're not two guys we want to fix you up with. <laughs> no, no. Go ahead. Listen. They're actually both produced by... Uh, <laughs> cells in your in your gut and uh one is sort of a go switch and one of us is a stop switch so so ghrelin is the one it's released mostly by uh, stomach cells and it it uh causes you to become hungry so it increases your uh, need to eat so hunger leptin does the opposite it's sort of the satiety end of things when you feel satiated or full and so that's released um also by cells when you feel full and, and it's ve- those two of those especially leptin are very very important mm-hmm. in uh, regulating your uh, energy expenditure, energy storage, which we call fat. And uh, it turns out that the same things that cause insulin resistance, um, like excessive sugar in the diet and so on, chronically, 
um, also cause leptin resistance. So mm-hmm. you lose that ability in the brain to stop eating. And so you get this sort of uncontrolled eating. And so you see this with people as they become obese. They also stop to, they, they, they get hungry all the time, but mm. they lose that sense of I'm full, I can stop eating now. And of course that just creates more obesity. Right. How about those obese people who say, I'm, I'm never hungry, I never eat. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, everyone's I, hungry. <laughs> I, anytime somebody says, what about those people? I always say, well, I, I'd actually have to talk to them and see what they <laughs> actually are eating and what they're buying. And I, what I do is I, I just, just, you know, you can do this yourself. Go to the grocery store and just look at people of different sizes and see what's in their shopping cart. Right, exactly. And yeah. I, you'll often see very high sugar products in people that are having weight control problems. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No, I was just always jealous of them. Like, how come I can eat, you know? Well, there are the, there's that brown fat. So mm-hmm. some, some people have more brown fat, so they can just eat whatever they want and they don't ever put on weight. And, right. And, you know, those are the people we all hate. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You took but, the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> but actually, you know, you can produce more brown fat cells. Yes. Um, okay. And part of it is by, you know, by reducing the, the white fat, the mid-abdominal visceral fat, which you can do through a ketogenic diet. Part of it is also just by being a bit cooler. It turns out if you just, uh, if you're cool and they've tied this with, you know, cold baths and that sort of thing, that you'll oh. actually increase your brown fat. Oh, okay. Really? So mm-hmm. I should take this fake fur jacket off? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always freezing. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, it's okay in here, but Maureen's always wearing mink. I'm always... <laughs> fake mink. Uh, um, so where do we go from here? What what week are we at again? We're at, uh, we're at about week we? uh, seven. Oh, well, the first seven. one was just the preparation, you know, go and see your physician. So right, so, so we're, we're halfway yeah. through. We're past we're, the halfway we're, mark. We're, we're past the halfway mark, uh-huh. and we're going to, as I said, what we're going to do in the next few weeks, just stay with the program. Again, you can go to biodiet.org. Uh-huh. You can see there's the shopping list there under the resources tab. Yeah. Um, the tools and just stay with the program. Uh, don't you, some some people plateau, some people don't. Right. Um, try not to cheat, but if you do, don't mm-hmm. beat yourself up over it. Just get back on the horse. Mm-hmm. And so, what I'm going to do, which I think will help psychologically, is over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about those major causes of chronic disease. And each week, I'm going to tell you how a ketogenic diet can prevent it and maybe even treat it. So, we talked about Alzheimer's and brain health today. Uh, so next week, we're going to be talking about type two diabetes, and there's some really, really very uh, rigorous and compelling data that's come out in the last few years to show the uh, therapeutic benefits of ketogenic diets for, for type 2 diabetes in particular. And what are some of the other chronic diseases um, that, that a ketogenic diet might help? Yeah, well, the main, the main four chronic diseases, period, are, are um, well, cardiovascular disease mm-hmm. and, and cancer are the two biggest killers. Mm-hmm. Uh, diabetes now, uh, arguably, it's the third, depending on, you know, because often people die of complications of diabetes, which turn out to be cancer or cardiovascular disease. Right. Uh, and Alzheimer's. And in and, and my estimate, and it is really just a back-of-the-envelope estimate, is that you can reduce your risk of those by about 70% uh, if you adopt a ketogenic diet and if it's appropriate for you. We talked about the contraindications and so on earlier. Um, and, and so now, what, and, and I, we'll be talking about that in the weeks to come, but also the therapeutic benefits. So people that already have those, does a ketogenic diet actually benefit that? And next week, I'll talk about the fact that we can, there are no drugs there are no drugs available that can reverse type 2 diabetes, but a ketogenic diet can, and it's been well established now. Right. I understand that. I did, mm-hmm. um, I was speaking to somebody today who he's lost 50 pounds. Um, basically, he said by cutting out sugar and cutting out carbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's type 2 diabetic, mm-hmm. but he's, he is still taking his medication. Um, but for some. Yeah, probably less of it, though. Yeah, he didn't seem to. Okay. Um, yeah, I was surprised that I was expecting that he would have um, cut that down, but uh, he did change medications. So, right. 
Um, but uh, some people may not need their medication anymore. Is that correct? Uh, Yeah. Uh, About 90% of people over a year can reduce the amount of medication they need, typically metformin or or insulin, sometimes these SGLT2 inhibitors, the newer drugs. Uh, 60% of people over two years can actually reverse their diabetes. So that means that that they they don't need to take their medication anymore. Right. So, and yeah. often that 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 conversion happens typically within about four weeks, but mm-hmm. with some people it can happen very very quickly. Within, we've seen some very few cases of people that have been, you know, type two diabetic taking metformin for ten years, and within a couple of days they no longer need it because uh, they we just turn their pancreatic yeah. pancreatic cells on again, and and uh, and they're regulating their uh, blood sugar um, properly, and so the whole. The whole key to this is keeping your insulin levels moderate, mm-hmm. and you can't. You know, if you again, we'll talk about diabetes next week, but you can't. Um, you, in order to keep your insulin levels moderate, you can't consume a lot of carbohydrate because that's what drives up your insulin right. levels. Exactly, yeah. and so many people do that. Okay, so um, some people who want to get on our train now, yeah, yeah. halfway through, they can still get your book. Biodiet.org. Sure, you can get yeah. the Biodiet at Biodiet.org. And on, and on your website too, because yes. we have all the previous episodes on there as well. That's right. Although there was one a couple of weeks ago that didn't quite get on there. Is oh, it yeah, there we'll, we'll, we'll figure that we'll one out. We'll get that up. But you can I, go back and start. <laughs> uh, you can start from week one uh, by going back through your show, which is great. Thank you for doing this for us. Not and and yeah, the audiobook's available anytime uh, people want to follow along with that. Okay, welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Spinal cord injury is damaged to any part of the spinal cord or nerves at the end of the spinal canal, the cauda equina. It often causes permanent changes in strength, sensation, motor function, and other bodily functions below the site of injury. It may impact your bladder health, your bowel health, and your ability to uh, have good sexual function. Joining me in the studio are two wives of men who have spinal cord injury. They are, well, the one's a wife, one's a girlfriend. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, um, the WAGs, the wives and girlfriends of men with spinal cord injury. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining me in the studio, Brooke and Lena. Uh, it's great to have you here. Thank you. So I could have sworn I saw wedding pictures of both of you on your website. No? Uh, No, that was the white party that she and Dan had. She was dressed in white, but she wasn't getting married. Oh, okay. And I was wondering, I was like, why didn't you invite me? I didn't get the invitation. So, okay. No, no, that was just the annual dinner in Blanc, downtown Vancouver. Uh, Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay, anyway, so, well, fabulous. A wife and a girlfriend here in the studio of two men who were injured uh, at quite young ages uh, at a time when people are setting out on their lives. Um, They've perhaps started their career and are facing a lot of issues that uh, occur with a spinal cord injury and the trauma of all that. Not to mention the motor function and the sensation and the sexual function but also the psychological um, issues that can occur as well. So you've started this fantastic podcast. I happen to be a guest on it the other yeah. <laughs> week. Um, and thank you so much for having me. And you also have this website. You've got all of these resources on there for people who are navigating uh, this issue because, uh, again, there are just so many things that can occur, so many life changes in the face of love at the beginning of your husband's, in this case, journey. And it's not just men who can experience uh, spinal cord injury, of course, um, but it is more likely to be a 
traumatic spinal cord injury when it is for men, but women yeah. um, can experience it as well. well. So the cold hard truth is 80% of spinal cord injuries are men. So exactly, exactly. There's a lot of us out here, out there. That's right. And so there's a lot of women mm-hmm. um, and, and some men who are in relationships with men who've experienced spinal cord injury. So Brooke, why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about your story and um, why you decided to start WEGS? So my husband, he was injured on the job site, actually in West Vancouver, building Collingwood. Um, He was a superintendent there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, He was 24 when he got injured. He was um, checking out a load of flooring that had come in from Quebec and it fell on his head and he was instantly paralyzed. Oh. Yeah. So it was very traumatic. He turned 25 in the hospital. Um, and we had been dating for about four years before this happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we were living in Kitsilano. We had a walk-up apartment. He mm-hmm. couldn't go back to his apartment. He was in rehab for about five months at GF Strong. Right, right. So he couldn't go back to his job. Um, and we ended up moving to South Surrey because mm-hmm. we had bought an investment property there. And my mom actually lived in the building. So it was great. My mom was there for the first year and a bit of the injury. Um, and we were just alone. We didn't know anybody else who were in our situation. I right. literally thought I was the only one in Vancouver. I, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any resources. Um, I just kind of learned everything myself. And we ended up moving back to Kitsilano. And that is where I met Elena. Um, that was about two years into my husband's injury. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, we met on Instagram. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> Social media. and <laughs> I know. I was at an event today and people were like, I, I've seen you on the internet. I'm like, okay, <laughs> nice to see you again too. Um, so what level, because it, it matters, um, yeah. the, the completeness of the injury and the level of the injury. So high, how high was your, the higher the injury, mm-hmm. the more devastating and also the completeness versus the incompleteness, mm-hmm. um, you know, alters the outcome. So what level was your husband's injury? He is a C4. Four so he's level. pretty high. He's quite high. Quad, quad. Yeah, he's C4. Yeah. Um, originally, he was Asia A, and then on his last day of GF, they re-diagnosed him as Asia C. Um, and he's in a power chair most of the time. Okay. Um, but yeah, C4. Right, yeah. So he has a significant um, impact yeah. on... Yeah, so for those of you out there who don't know, he can use his biceps. Um, he can't use his wrists, his triceps. He has no hand function. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from about the you know the nipple line down that yeah. he's paralyzed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I've worked with people in spinal cord injury. I've done a significant amount of research in that area, interviewed a lot of uh, patients with that. And some of the myths that I had or some of the beliefs that I had, I learned from the spinal cord injury patients that they may not necessarily be true. Like I assumed naively that... Um, that everybody would be depressed. And mm. so I was stunned to find, and, and we do very limited uh, research studies, so they have a small number of um, patients who are enrolled, but I would find that like 14 out of the 15 weren't on an antidepressant, and mm. I would have expected it to be the other way around. And I learned that people typically go back to their baseline personality, but they may have elements of control that are added. Yeah. Well, I mean, just in general, from what I've seen and when, from what we've gone through as a couple, I would say at some point or another, everyone goes through a period of extreme depression. 
-hmm. But with that comes the chance to get yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when the contentment comes, when you realize, I don't want to be depressed for the rest of my life. Right. And I shouldn't (laughs) say, you know, I typically would see patients at this particular study, they were, you know, five and 10 years out of of their spinal cord injury. So they had been living with spinal cord injury for a while. Yeah. Um, But that's a good point. So Elena, tell me a little bit about your story. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you for having us. (laughs) But just one second. I think we have a call on the line. Oh, not yet. Go ahead. Okay, so my name is Elena Pauly. I am now 32 years old, even though I like to say not a day past 29. (laughs) You're Um, 29 again. (laughs) That's right. Not a day past. Um, No, so my partner, Dan Duffy, um, and I were on holidays in Cuba, KO Santa Maria. It was uh, January 2nd, 2016, that we were vacationing and the day before we had to go home, he dove into the resort pool oh. and uh, began to drown and became a quadriplegic on the spot. And I, I feel like now I can kind of talk about it with, uh, without a whole bunch of emotion because, you know, the process is so far behind us, but still so real. Um, but yeah, so at that point, I just kind of called the embassy, let them know where we were and did all the phone calling, contacted his family, of course. Everybody was very devastated. And uh, his operation actually happened in Cuba. He was stabilized before we could be airlifted out. So uh, my phone bill was over $6,000 that week. Oh, gee. (laughs) Now, at that time... uh, what was it that you were expecting? What was your, if if you can even recall, it was probably a bit of a blur. Um, to be completely honest with you, I was expecting that, uh, you know, a broken bone was a broken bone. I was expecting that maybe in a month that he would get up and walk out. Mm-hmm. I was expecting, um, I was expecting a lot of things. I did not, um, I had no idea the severity of the injury. And uh, in, a, in a country where you're speaking broken Spanish or a different dialect of Spanish, you're speaking Cuban Spanish, um, Google Translate was my best friend. And that's how I communicated with the doctors and the nurses. And uh, because Dan couldn't talk, I would hold up the, my, uh, my cell phone and go through every single letter on the keyboard and get him to blink until we spelled sentences and then translated that into English or into Cuban and back and forth. So... Mm-hmm. I was expecting, um, I don't really know, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing you, can really prepare you for this life, right? Spinal cord injury had probably never crossed your mind. No, I mean, they said a broken neck. They were signaling at the neck. And um, so I just kind of thought, okay, we just need to get out of here. They did want to keep us there for about a month. And um, no, I made a pretty big deal that the chief of the hospital came out from his house in the middle of the night to let me know that... You know, they were going to work with us and try to give us what we needed to get out. So right. we left We left about a week after. Right, right. Um, and, you know, this is a tremendous change in life um, when this occurs. People mm-hmm. have to change jobs, which I know uh, happened with Dan. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and they may or may not be able to even provide for the family uh, as they may have expected to do, or they may um, have to change careers. And, and so... You both stayed. Mm, we did <laughs> with the loves of your lives. We did. Yeah. To yes. be honest, to be honest, both Elena and I, that never even qu- crossed our mind leaving. No, it, it didn't. And every, people say that all the time, like, "Oh, how did you stay? Like that must be so hard." And it just never crossed our mind to leave. Like they're, you know, these guys are at the worst moment of their lives, you know, and so are we. And it's just we just wanted to fight through. 
And after a while, we wanted to create our own resources that we didn't have when we were going through the worst time of our life, when we were trying to support our partner. Yeah. And this is something that we keep on kind of going back to in all of our podcasts and all of our um, talk shows and things that we do is, you know, I, I still clearly have that moment after leaving my partner at GM Strong, the rehabilitation center here. And, you know, after you turn off the lights and, you know, you give give them a kiss goodbye and you do all that good stuff and uh, you get in your car and you just cry because you're so isolated. You're so alone. And in all fairness, the other wives and girlfriends and partners that are going through the same thing on the same floor next door to you, they don't want to talk. They don't want to talk about grieving mm. the loss of something that nobody understands quite yet. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think we all were under the impression that our partners were going to get up and walk. <laughs> so well, that's hope, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Hope in the face of devastation. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Joining me in the studio are uh, a couple of girlfriends of SCI, although they are the ladies of WAGS, Wives and Girlfriends of SCI.com is the website. And these ladies, uh, in their devastation, I have to say, you know, I'm just wildly impressed with the two of you because this is a very painful journey uh, Mm -hmm. at many times, living and loving and caring for, I mean, you know, it's hard enough, the husbands, but, you know, when they have a spinal cord injury, it's a whole other kettle of fish. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you are a caregiver to the person to whom you are attracted Mm -hmm. sexually, have intimacy with, um, you know, there's that separation of, you know, because the bladder function Mm. alters and the, and the sexual function is altered. And, And I think a lot of people realize that, that the sexual function can be altered, but they wonder, you know, there's such mystery around it. So how do people have sex after they've had a spinal cord injury? And, and I know the two of you know more about that than I do, even though I work in the field, I can only talk from a clinical perspective and what, what is offered. But um, Brooke, why don't you share a little bit with some of, about some of your journey in terms of sex? Yeah. I mean, obviously I would say a couple weeks into his injury, I was like, first, how is he going to the bathroom? I had no clue Mm -hmm. within a couple of weeks. And and then the second question was like, how are we going to have sex again? Like, how does that work? And then I just kind of put those feelings aside because I was like, I didn't want to focus or think about that. Um, And then we met with the sexual health doctor at GF Strong and she was introducing all these new things, pills, Viagra, Cialis. Mm -hmm. Then you can get an implant. You can try the needle. Um, It's similar. It's the same medication that men with prostate cancer use. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very common. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's lots of different avenues. And I think my husband and I, when we started off, we wanted to know about everything and find what worked for us. So, you know, I was saying to you before, we tried everything. We went to I-Cord to Dr. Elliot, the sexual health doctor at I-Cord and we just started the process and the process took about two years trying different things, getting blood tests, getting hormones tested, trying different vibrators, seeing if he could ejaculate, all that kind of stuff. It was interesting to us and it was really interesting to me because I just wanted to see what was available so I could help other women. Right. You and, know? and you certainly do that through your website, uh, wags.com, um, wagsofsci.com. Sorry about yeah. that. Um, which is a great resource, especially if you are new to the spinal cord injury world, whether you are injured mm-hmm. or whether you are a lover or a partner yeah. of somebody who has been injured. Mm-hmm. And, and Lena, um, tell me a little bit about your sexual journey. Did you think, oh my gosh, are we never going to be able to have sex again? And, and, and how how do people with spinal cord injury enjoy sex again? 
No, absolutely. I, I mean, I'll be completely honest with you. Um, we're still kind of going through that journey right now ourselves. Um, we're not pros in the bedroom by any means. And, um, you know, there are so many, there are so many things out there. There are so many, you know, gadgets you can have installed in your room. Like we always joke about using, using the sling, and the lift in our in our bedroom as a sex wing. But I mean, like, honestly, you'd be very surprised at what's out there. And I think, honestly, for us, the most important part is getting that education piece involved and educating yourself around what what you can do from, you know, we all, I hate to say this on air because I know there's some people listening, like my partner, but bowels and bladder, how do you control those things before you're mm-hmm. going to be intimate? And mm-hmm. what does being intimate look like for you? It, sometimes it's having a foot rub. Sometimes it's... And I say this very openly to my partner. You have to be nice in order to have sex. So that's you know, all partners. Yeah. That's yeah. Everyone. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you have to have that foundation with your partner, that mm-hmm. open communication and understanding and and being able to be on the same page in terms of um, com- communication and connection mm-hmm. first and foremost, because sex isn't just like it just doesn't just happen. You know, you don't just get lucky mm-hmm. with whoever you want, especially after spinal cord injury when you are dating and you are kind of, you know, testing out the field. And um, I say the first thing that that kind of underlines everything is is having a connection with your partner. Mm-hmm. And and there's different ways to explore. I mean, they're different. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to mention that um, for those who may not be aware, some of the issues that can occur for men, depending on the injury, the level of injury, the completeness of injury or the incompleteness, um, it's erectile dysfunction is mm-hmm. a big issue in a, in a huge way. Mm-hmm. And also um, ejaculation mm-hmm. can be another issue where men are no longer able to ejaculate. They may get retrograde ejaculation mm-hmm. where the ejaculate goes into the bladder. And then um, there's also sperm. Um, there are issues with sperm as well, mm-hmm. so that affects fertility. But something else is that when men with spinal cord injury may have a full bladder mm-hmm. or um, they're constipated or during sex, they may experience something because especially if they um, injury if there's a something that occurs below the level of T6, thoracic 6, they may get something called autonomic dysreflexia, mm-hmm. which is a life-threatening increase in blood pressure. And and so one has to remove the um, the the annoyance, you know, what that whatever is causing. Mm-hmm. So maybe do a catheter to empty the bladder or stop having sex mm-hmm. is the answer. And so it can be really coitus interruptus quite frequently. Yeah, I mean, for the first year and a half, I felt like I was literally drowning. Like for people listening to this, that don't have know someone with a spinal cord injury, it's there's so much to know and it's so complicated and you can be so overwhelmed, but exactly. it's doable. And we're up against the clock. Ladies, thank you so much. We'll get you back because there's so many resources on your website. Um, Wags, uh, I'm up against the clock. The website is wagsofsci.com. Okay, welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Hell Show. This week I was incensed. I was gutted. I've had it with uh, the violence against women that occurs in this country and in this world, quite frankly. Um, and so I, I've actually, on, on World Radio Day, which occurred this week, I, I wanted to do something impactful. And, you know, I was reflecting on the fact that I have done this show for about seven and a half years now. And I remember seven and a half years ago, I had picked up a contract at a 
quote unquote, supposed science company. And the head of the science company was a gay man who was closeted. And when I arrived there, uh, you know, or accepted this contract, um, you know, I was given a particular role or duties, whatever. I get down to it. Pretty serious Monday to Friday. The weekends are a different story. And um, and things started to uh, be very strange, quite frankly. Um the you know the behavior of this of this particular person who owned the company or whatever um the person who was leading the company uh who had been a photocopy boy before he became this you know whatever ceo president whatever he called himself that changed on a daily basis um but i noticed that his behavior toward me was um gaslighting type of behavior uh he was verbally abusive he was he would change the goalposts all the time uh he would give mixed messages uh you know there were there were things that were you know significant people in the company would kind of say you know what's going on here isn't actually real um or you know some of the clinical trials have been fudged or or altered and so it was kind of hmm and it was a startup company and so the other red flag was that the guy was looking for money from all of the employees which just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Anyway, um, and so I realized that I, I had never been the target of uh, violence from a man. I, you know, I have one of the extraordinarily lucky women who have not experienced this. And, um, you know, my, I have a wonderful father, um, always encouraging, always, um, you know, you can do anything a man can do, including changing your oil, which I was taught at a very young age. Um, and so, you know, it was just, there was, there was just no difference between, um, you know, men and women. And so this was just something entirely new to me. And then I learned that, that this guy, um, not only was abusing me, uh, but he was also abusing other women at the company. And he'd been doing that for, you know, 10 years of his career. And, and so, because I, I had to get to the bottom of this, I thought, what is this? And I learned that he had actually abused women in his other role as well. And so I actually phoned some of those women and said, you know, do you know this particular person? And, and these women were gobsmacked that, that somebody had called them because they thought that they were the only ones, number one, you think you're the only one who is being abused by a man. And, and one woman had never worked again. She had such traumatic stress disorder uh, or post-traumatic stress disorder. She thought it was depression, but it turns out to be a, it's a complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And she thought she'd never would work again. And she said, just hearing from me was such a gift because it freed her from the guilt and the shame and, and that, you know, she didn't want him to be carrying on and doing this for all those years. But, but on some level, it's, it sort of frees you from that. What's wrong with me that he does this to me. And so this, I was also at the time I was a regular health contributor. And so I was being invited by radio stations across the country on the Chorus Radio Network, of course, to um, just contribute, uh, you know, to women's sexual health issues or, or men's sexual health issues. And so this person knew that and he knew I loved doing radio. And so he would schedule a meeting or prevent me from be, from being able to go on the air. And so that was also part of the, part of the scheme. And so I lasted eight weeks there. That's the good news. And I thought, this is not for me. 
me, but you know what? This is so wrong. And so I did file a complaint with the Human Rights Tribunal. I got a lawyer. In fact, I got a law firm uh, that had 90 years between them of dealing with big unions. You know, I'm going for the big guns, okay? Um, You go big or you go home. But something I want to tell you is that you don't actually have to pay the lawyers up front. They had two options. You could actually pay them the money and you, or they could take a percentage and you'd probably get a little bit less if you went with the percentage route. Um, so there are options for, for you. Um, so there are so many, you know, this workplace bullying and sexual harassment, that was the other thing that I was experiencing. And I would go home at night and I would write in my notebook the date, the time, what happened, just exactly. It wasn't prose. It wasn't poetic. It was just exactly as it happened. It was bizarre. And and so I did sue him, or if you call that. And, you know, one of my biggest regrets is that, and I, and I said to them, I want to be on the courthouse steps. I want to, you know, expose this. This is outrageous. But you know what? Unfortunately, oftentimes, lawyers are in each other's back pockets. They want to settle, and they want you to sign a confidentiality agreement, which I have done. And um, But I, I'm not sure if the Me Too movement, and when I get a minute, I am going to check out if the Me Too movement has obliterated all of those confidentiality agreements, if those don't count anymore. Um, but anyway... I learned a tremendous amount. I learned a lot about myself. And I also made a promise that I, I decided it was at that time that I was going to go to the head of the people, who, um, the head of the radio station and say to them uh, that I would like my own show. And to be honest with you, it took me two months to craft a little sales pitch. And and so after two months, I got up the courage because I'd lost my courage. I, I, was, I was gutted then. I wasn't myself. I was nervous. I'd lost my self-confidence. But I finally got enough and they said, okay, we'll talk. I asked to have a meeting with them. They said, okay, we'll give you, you know, 10 minutes on Friday afternoon at 3.15. I said, okay, fantastic. So I went in and I just started out with, you know, I think it's time for my own radio show. And they said, we couldn't agree with you more. Can you start on Sunday? And I said, hang on there. I've worked on this little sales pitch for two months. You're going to hear it. And um, so it started, you know, and I said, if I am so blessed and so lucky to get this platform, I am never, ever going to forget violence against women. And I am always going to make that a part of this show in which I have continued to do throughout those years. Because when you have weeks like a liberal leader in British Columbia who makes quote unquote, I don't know if it's a word, but they're unwoke comments about women in violent relationships. Um, You know, when he actually calls women who've been sexually or uh, harassed or um, abused in a marriage um, and he calls them tough relationships. I mean, really, it's time for a wake up call. And then another man on Twitter gave him a mulligan. I think we need to stop giving men who abuse women mulligans. And if you don't, if you're not a golfer, you may not know what a mulligan is, but um, it's giving them a pass. Essentially, it's giving giving them another chance. And, you know, and these, and the thing was the NDP government in British Columbia actually provided five days of paid leave for women who are suffering in domestic violence situations. And that's a great start because oftentimes that's what women need. They worry about finances. They worry about their kids. They worry about where they're going to live. So I was also 
gutted at the story of a woman in my clinical practice who was worried sick when her ex, who was abusive, took her four kids, afraid that they might die under his care, and he had a boat. And one day, one of her children didn't come back, and nobody believed her, but she knew better. The family forever changed. And then we have another... Um, woman, a physician in Ontario whose four-year-old daughter has um, has died. He was under the care of her husband, her ex-husband, sorry. Um, he has had visitation. and um, But you know what? He There's allegations that this was a murder-suicide. This is a man, he was given visitation. Now, I want to ask every judge and every lawyer out there, if your child, if if you... If your child or the, the mother of your child had a rat put into her mouth because he didn't like how she was speaking or he had killed bunnies in the backyard, would you actually give a four-year-old to that man? Well, some, but some judges in Ontario did just that. And I, that is just, I mean, I, I am just outraged at that. And so we cannot have this anymore. I hear from women all the time that men are confining, controlling, constantly texting them and keeping them from family and friends. These are initial red flags. So what I've done at this stage of the game, seven and a half years later, I started uh, start a um, break the silence social media campaign where every day I will post something on social media to try and help and educate women to understand. And I know that men are in these relationships too, but guess what? It's 80% women and we got to deal with that. And so um, on social media, that's what I'm going to do every day. Write a tip, send something. If it helps somebody, um, and you can follow me on Twitter, you can follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook. I'll be putting it all over. It might just be one sentence. It might be a blog. It might be a paragraph. But I'd love you to share your stories with me as well. You can email me at nursetalk at hotmail.com. So I will continue to use my voice here on this radio to break the silence. And I'd really like for you to do that. We need to be courageous and stand up and do that. I want to thank Tim French tonight for a fabulous job, as usual, when he fills in. You can follow me on Twitter, as I mentioned. You can email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful family day tomorrow. I am Maureen McGrath, and you've been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.